Hey, everybody. It's Megan. Before we jump into this week's episode, I just wanted to preface our conversation about Roland Betancourt's Byzantine intersectionality, where in our conversation, we speak on transgendered lives, eunuch lives in the Middle Ages, racialization, gender versus sex, and quite a few other things that this really compelling book touches upon. And before we get into the episode, I just wanted to say that Elo and myself heavily identify as supporters and allies to the Black Lives Matter movement, transgender lives matter, BIPOC lives matter, and that if we don't use correct language or if we seem insensitive at times, we sincerely apologize. That was never our intention. We are still learning and navigating how to be the best allies and supporters that we can. So hopefully, despite this little preface, you enjoy our episode, you learn something, and if there's room for improvement in any way, shape, or form, please, please do let us know by reaching out to us. So with that, I hope that you enjoy this week's episode. Thanks. Hello. It rem- that reminds me of, um, did you watch the Freddie Mercury film? Oh, yeah, uh-huh. When he goes, like, in the stadium and he does that echoing game. <laughs> yeah, and the da-da-da-da. When it makes, uh, I was thinking in my mind much more of uh, Twin Peaks and The Return. Oh, yeah. Cooper Cooper's at the casino in Vegas, and he keeps pulling, and he goes, hello, <laughs> over and over and over again. It's just 10 minutes of him doing that. <laughs> um, welcome to Modern Medieval, the podcast. I yes. am Megan. And I'm Ello. And if you've just started listening, welcome. And if you're coming back from another episode, welcome back. Yes, welcome back. This week we are actually going back to our modern and medieval roots. Yes. Which is very exciting on a topic that we're both rather passionate about or very like invested in. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. So for a bit of context... Um, Megan's writing a review on a book that inspired the, this podcast and so she'll want to put the link for at some point or advertise. Once it goes up I will. I actually haven't submitted it yet. I'm submitting it tomorrow but yes yeah, for the book Byzantine Intersectionality, Sexuality, Gender and Race in the Middle Ages by the scholar Roland Betancourt. And he's a professor at UC Irvine in California. And he does really amazing work that really crosses this modern and medieval and questioning, well, what is so modern about this and using contemporary or quote unquote modern methodologies to revisit medieval texts, images. He's an art historian primarily. So that's nice for us as well. Yeah. He focuses on the Byzantine era. So, you know, late antiquity up until 1453. So this is the Mediterranean area. So Italy over, you know, through parts of Greece, but also into Turkey, Syria, Egypt, what Palestine and Israel are now. So that much more kind of Eastern gateway into the Near East and then, you know, further over. So this is a non quote unquote Western Eurocentric perspective. Yeah. This is, if you think of Hagia Sophia, which if you've been with us, you've listened to those episodes, this yeah. is much more of that type of medieval, yeah. the mosaics and the gold 
um, Capella Palatina that you talked about, Ella, definitely has a Byzantine flavor to it. Yes, yes, for sure. And so uh, if if you haven't listened to these episodes, we would recommend, if if you find this episode interesting, to go and have a listen. They were lots of fun to record. Um, And it it, it is a truly fascinating historical period that um, I would say doesn't get as much attention as it should. in a I agree. way yeah from like, it's kind of it's kind of niche in a way isn't it it's kind of niche in the medieval world but not you know with my so I've officially started my PhD yeah well done welcome Thank you I mean I'm just in the first week but researching materials to check it out the library and doing all that there is more Byzantine material than I thought right. a lot of it is going to be art history I've noticed okay um or in the genre of hagiography. So this yeah. is, you know, becoming my field. So if you forgot what that is, it's the study of the writing of saints' lives. So these really interesting biography slash fan fiction, historical, fictional tales, you know, they're kind of all over the place, depending on who's writing when. And they really reflect the anxieties or thoughts, lifestyles of a moment. Yeah. So, which I think is really fascinating. But the yeah. Byzantine era is really kind of, known for having really great hagiographers who write about um saints lives and like Egypt like Mary of Egypt who we'll speak about yeah in a bit I didn't so as always I'm always astounded by how ignorant I am I had no idea of Mary of Egypt I mean there are also so many saints and they are that makes me feel better (laughs) if you don't grow up in like a very catholic environment environment and then this is also much more related to what is considered orthodox Christian now or Eastern Orthodox rather than the Catholicism that we have now following the Vatican one and two. So there's also that and it becomes more westernized through time. So I think we're more familiar with the westernized element and the handful, you know, St. Patrick, uh, Joan of Arc, who is now a saint, St. George, because we're in England, uh, St. Album, those kind of people rather than the vast, vast majority also, originally when, you know, the church was young, so we're talking about 200 to maybe 700, 800 yeah. saints, there were hundreds and hundreds of saints. The canonization process didn't exist like we have it today. It was yeah. much more of a popularity contest. Oh, my God. Everything is a popularity contest. <laughs> Isn't it so astounding? Like, you know how when you were in school and like you had to like, I don't know, depending on everyone's like relationship with school mm-hmm. you know people would be hard but like no but it's fine you know it's fine you grow out of these things schools just appear mm-hmm. in your life and everything afterwards is better mm-hmm. actually in the end it all comes down to like the same concepts of popularity and stuff like that yeah I mean 100% I mean if like going into academia you want to be a popular teacher you want your students to like you at work you want good reviews from your supervisors so there is different types of popularity for sure yeah. but yeah so Saints were, they popped up everywhere and had so many different kinds of <laughs> Yeah. So it can be a bit to weed through, but Betancourt in Byzantine intersectionality does do a really good job of working with a select few in each chapter. So I guess before we dive in, just if you're like, what is intersectionality? So it was established in the 80s by a law professor. So this is originally from like law and sociology, this um, concept. So by law professor Kimberly Crenshaw, 
She's a huge civil rights activist, uh, lawyer. She coins intersectionality. And this is meant to stress the lived realities of marginalized people who do not exist as isolated factors alone, but instead come together at the intersections, so the crossroads, of gender, sexuality, race, socioeconomic status, and so on. This means that intersectionality looks at how the overlap of these different social identities create unique conditions of inequality and oppression. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of something that I think we're really aware of today, especially yeah. when you look at politics. Especially in the past six months or so. Yeah. Um, but like the term intersectionality might seem a bit, it's something that we all are aware of, but maybe don't use that term to express yeah, or, you know, it's one of those things where, like, you've heard it and you have a vague idea of what it mm-hmm. means, but you may not know fully how it, like, what it actually means. Yeah, and I mean, it's one it of can, those things that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah, and it can be quite slippery as well, especially because Betancourt is using this legal term or he uses it as a methodology, so a way of looking at this material. So at times, but really it's just the overlap of... yeah. So, for example, my intersectionality, you know, if we were to do this, is that I'm a white queer woman who is a, you know, first generation college student. Parents were separated, so lower middle class. And that those are the different elements that create my identity. Yeah. So then you'd have, you know, a different one, Ello, because you have the American and the Italian. Yeah. And the British. Yeah, it's all kind of mixed up. It's really just in separate building blocks, <laughs> in yeah. a way. Um, and so the way that Betancourt in this book structures it yeah. is that there are five chapters. So he has an introduction chapter that introduces his theme that's on Mary of Egypt. And then each chapter focuses on a different area of quote-unquote intersectionality Ooh. during the Byzantine era. So the first chapter is The Virgin's Consent. Mm-hmm. which is about rape. It is about sexual consent. It's really interesting because he looks at depictions of the Annunciation. So when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her that she will be the virgin mother of Christ. And what Betancourt says about this, that I think is really interesting is that people, we like know what the Annunciation is, air quotes, but we don't actually know what it is. I actually was just thinking that, but you know, that's not an <laughs> uncommon thing for me to think like, I, I, I know this, but I, do I really know this? Yeah. So Betancourt really goes deep into the like history of, well, was it she impregnated the moment that Gabriel arrived? Was she impregnated through After? the speech words of Gabriel saying? So was this like a type of not ear rape, but ear intercourse? Because Mary doesn't initially say yes. She has to think about it. So yeah, yeah, then is she impregnated as Gabriel leaves and then the Holy Spirit comes? So it's not just like Annunciation, Mother of God. It's, I mean, theologians in this era spent so much time pursing through this. And I had never thought of that before. So that's chapter one. Chapter two is slut shaming an empress. So this is primarily about Empress Theodora. Yeah. Who was the wife of Justinian. And the way that she's depicted, what he's really trying to do, because she was notoriously uh, avant-garde and open in her sexual relations, was that these historians would write about her and 
impose shame on her and be like, basically, you know, she's a slut. She's doing these things, but using their own language. And Betancourt's trying to take away that shame and ask, why is this a shameful act if men do the same? Yeah. Um, the hypocrisies of our society. Yeah, the perpetual hypocrisies of the patriarchy, if you will. <laughs> yeah, true. Chapter three, which I think is one of the ones we'll spend the most time on and is also one that I am the most interested in personally, is titled Transgender Lives. Yeah, very interesting, I think. And this is about transgendered saints. Mm-hmm. Um, Elo hasn't read the book yet. I'm no, not going to read no. the book. Yeah, no, so but... <laughs> I, um, I've read an interview um, with the author and an article that maybe yes. I sent and over. So my knowledge is kind of like your knowledge, your listener. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm learning along as, as um, Megan speaks. But the article I sent Elo about transgendered lives in the Middle Ages through art, literature, and the medicine that Benincourt wrote for the Getty actually seems to be like the working process of chapter three in this book. Yeah. The saints he speaks about or the emperors that he speaks about are the same, but the way he uses pronouns is different. So that's yeah. something we'll want to dive into. Chapter yeah. four is queer sensations. So this is a lot about the Doubting Thomas image and him touching the spear wound in the resurrected Jesus. Yeah. And just kind of like the homoerotics in that. Yeah. And then the last chapter, chapter five, is like the capstone chapter and it's about the Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah. And so it's bringing together this idea of a eunuch, which is function is like a type of third gender, which we'll talk about in our transgender conversation, but then also racialization of the Ethiopian and how that works. And yeah, it's a really beautiful book. It asks a lot of big questions and is researched exponentially well. Uh, Anything from medieval illustrations or paintings to tapestries mosaics to medical texts about abortion yeah, it's, it seems I mean from that article alone it seemed like he was definitely doing quite a lot of research yeah I mean and I think in the interview I sent you Ellie he said he's been working on this for like five years or so I mean he's put the time and effort into this yeah I and... think that's, you know it's so interesting because obviously like if you aren't in academia and if you don't know very much about what an academic does it's very easy to assume that a book takes like what a year to write but like there's a whole process behind it that takes sometimes a lifetime to get to those conclusions and to yeah build that research so it's really it's quite it's quite astounding so when something's well done it's really well done yeah and I mean he's been an incredibly prolific author as well he I mean he only got his PhD in I think 2009 from Yale and he's had this book come out. He had a monograph come out called uh, Byzantium slash Modernism, which cool. I actually have on my bookshelf here, rented from the library. Oh, my God. Have you read it yet? No, but we'll most likely Oh, let me know what that's it. like. That sounds like <laughs> the kind of thing I want to read. <laughs> and then he has another text on, I believe it's sound and the senses in the medieval, as well as all the articles. So, right. I mean, yeah, it's been, he's been truly remarkable. And then he writes well. And if you looked at the index for this book, I mean, so many sources. Yeah, it's really like, you know, we did some research for our um, for dissertations and, you know, that felt like a lot of research. Mm -hmm. But obviously, 
you know, the more, the more you go on, the more you have to quote, the more you have to say, the more, mm-hmm. the more it has to be. And so that's quite interesting as well. Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, it's a bit daunting for me starting my PhD where it's just like, oh, fuck, this is going to be so much research. I was telling Elo before we started, my first kind of task is an 8,000 word literature review on hagiography, the genre. And I have checked out 12 books from the library on this. One of them is an, it, like a compilation and it's 875 pages alone. Yeah. And I mean, of course, it's selecting the important parts, but it's like that's just going to be for one section that I might use. Maybe. <laughs> of that, yeah, for this 80 to 90,000 word project. So it's exciting, but it's like there's also a reason why PhDs are in the UK three to four years yeah how long are you in the US uh anywhere from five to seven or eight but when you is it because you have to do a master's as well um kind of so your first year if you don't have a master's your first two years are like a taught you do attend classes right you're also required to do I think at least one year of teaching so like a a semester or a term term. no while you're in all right whereas in the UK it's not essential it's not mandatory it's not part of your contract but that's a shame as well because I feel like if you're going to be an academic it should kind of that should be part of your training yeah but I am personally excited to just like jump in and just start reading and my supervisor kind of we know we talk about what I want to study but she helps guide me Yeah, yeah yeah but it's up to me which is quite nice I'm done being taught things because as we know well, in all fairness you did you did an undergrad and then you do t- did two masters so chapeau to you <laughs> so back to byzantine intersectionality yeah, sorry following that break yeah uh Ello, i don't know if you want to start off with a question or yeah. some- so i've only read one article that kind of is part of what he talks about in the book and so mm-hmm. i was wondering a bit how he mixes a theme that we talk a lot about on this podcast um, the modern and the medieval in the medieval and or rather how these issues were also dealt w- with in Byzantine times and so in kind of way like does his thinking start with historical facts and then develop into themes and words and ways that we understand it or how do, does that tension exist within the book if that right. makes sense yeah, definitely. So right off the bat, he's very upfront about using this super contemporary methodology and, you know, visiting texts that are over a thousand years old. Yeah. He's very aware of that going in. And I mean, the epigraph for the book is actually a quote by Monica Lewinsky. All right. So he used, um, I'll read the quote. She says, yeah. I was branded as a tramp, tart, slut, whore, bimbo, and of course, that woman. When this happened to me 17 years ago, there was no name for it. Now we call it cyberbullying and online harassment. So he uses this to kind of usher you into the book. So as you can tell, it's already like a slap in the face of, oh, this isn't a quote from some hagiographer in 286. Yeah. Which I actually talk about this a bit in my my review, so I don't want to spoil it too much. But yeah, it's. I believe this is from her TED talk. I'm double checking that fact, but it really does set you up for kind of the themes and this woman's body and the stories that are told around it. But then with each chapter, 
excluding the introduction, Betancourt opens them with some text from like the life of Hilarion or something that sets up the themes in that chapter. So yeah. then subsequently, each chapter is set up by a Byzantine method. But in his introduction, as well as his conclusion, Betancourt really says that what is being talked about here, even though this is a new methodology, the idea of a transgendered life or a fluid gender identity, racialized politics, homoerotics, et cetera, et cetera, is not a uniquely modern way of being or living in the world. This didn't right. just pop up, you know, in the 19th century with like Oscar Wilde. Yeah. People didn't just like magically turn into wake up one day people. and say what was what's been happening. Yeah. So what his he's doing uh, or endeavoring to do is quote for this is Betancourt saying that uh, as much as I, so Betancourt responsibly can to read the figures in these texts and images as possible medieval subjects with a past, present, and most important, a future. So he's really trying to think, now that we have the language of a trans identity, or as homosexual, or as queer, or as anything else in the intersectional, you know, um, spectrum, the catalog, looking at these, and it, the idea that these are possible medieval subjects is really important because he's not slapping on these labels to these figures from a thousand years ago and saying, well, this yeah. is actually what they were. Yeah. He really does the work of saying, this is how I am reading this. Yeah. This is how it appears to be read. Here is uh, evidence from a medical treatise as well as a historiographer, as well as this visual depiction on this one kind of thing. So I really admire that. I think that that's important. And a little like antidote was I was telling my dad that this was our, during our talk this week, that this was our upcoming episode. And, you know, I was saying, you know, this isn't all uniquely modern, like queer people have been around forever. My dad was like, yeah, no, duh. And <laughs> it was just like nice to hear my, my dad say that because sometimes we butt heads about certain, you know, quote unquote issues, liberal yeah. issues or whatnot. Yeah. But it was nice where he's like, yeah, this isn't new. This isn't yeah. some tainting or devolution. Yeah. Um, and I just, it made me laugh because he was just so point blank about it. And just like, yeah, of course. And one final thing is, so uh, Medieval Art on Instagram did a little like Instagram review of the book and posted an image of the book. And the review, or not the reviews, the comments were all over the place. People really? Were, great, I want to buy this. And then other people being like, this is tarnishing history. How dare you with your liberal agenda go back and try to rewrite these people's histories and et cetera, et cetera. And it was just really interesting because that's so against what Betancourt's trying to do. He's trying to say, no, this has been around for centuries. They've been silenced or hidden or I talked about in ways that we don't things. use, you know? Like, the language was different. Yeah, yeah. The expression was different. So and That's so interesting, because I feel like, right, it, it seems like we are in an age where everything is kind of, we are getting to a point where we put words onto feelings and ways of of behaviours or things that have been happening mm -hmm. um, to define them, right? And so through that, you can understand maybe some things that have happened to you or like 
um, behaviors that you have or different types of anxiety, depression or anything. But it, it, it seems that people get so like, hate this kind of categorization mm-hmm. um, and so refuse to like read it in a way that is quite universal. So it's quite interesting. I mean, it, I feel like people are, are quite standoffish at the moment, but I don't know if this is just my impression. Yeah, it's just bizarre. And like what Benacore is doing is opening new nuanced ways of thinking yeah. about the, the world past. in the past because nothing is ever black and white. There's no differences. And he said, this was actually in the article, I believe, that I sent you, like any thoughts of this being an anachronistic approach, so out of perspective, yeah. means that these people are limited by their prescribed notions of what history is and a yeah. history. Yeah. That what is it that historians do but revisit the past? And yeah. it's because this is, you know, a gendered or a racialized perspective that it's considered taboo by those who are much more conservative. You know, they're like, this is against God. This is unholy. This is blasphemous. But if, you know, this was being done on a different subject, these people would be behind it. So interesting, but sad how, how certain things are perceived. Yeah. Um, to kind of, you know, allow us to move on, but like a quote that I have in my review that I think is really useful is by William Faulkner. Mm-hmm. who in his novel Requiem for a Nun, which I just found funny that it's, you know, titled religiously, but is the famous quote, the past is never dead. It's not even past. Yeah. And that That's idea true. with, again, this isn't new. Yeah. They just reimagine or reintroduce, rearticulate. It ebbs and flows. Yeah. Um, and so to kind of move on to yeah. uh, more the juice of, of the of the text um I was just wondering if you could quickly like speak about transgenderism or sex changes in mm-hmm. that time if quick, quickly giving like a, a, a very brief overview for our listeners who may be curious um, and, and about to buy the book yeah definitely so Betancourt in his text really focuses on female to male transgender lives because right. that's where the bulk of the documentation is. Yeah. That doesn't mean that there aren't uh, male to female, but it's just not as documented. He also talks about Emperor Elagabalus, mm-hmm. who was an emperor that identified as female. He's actually like the first recorded or thought to be recorded Uh, person to desire gender affirmation surgery. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of like figures that Fadencourt speaks about in the book. Initially going in, I thought, well, is it transgender or is it cross-dressing or is it something in between? Yeah. I was just curious. And he does a really wonderful, in the beginning of the chapter, goes through the meat of this and says that, you know, historically, uh, modern historians called these individuals transvestite or cross-dressing saints. But those labels are problematic for two reasons. First, the term transvestite is denounced by all contemporary guides to language on LGBTQ plus matters as a pejorative, suggesting that the practice of cross-dressing is rooted in psychological disorder and eroticism. So thinking of like Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, right? This is like a trope in horror, psychological drama, et cetera. He continues, second... Cross-dressing refers to persons who choose as a form of expression to dress as, but not to live full-time as the, quote, opposite gender. 
The term does not apply to the figures discussed here, who lived most of their lives as male eunuchs. Theirs were not temporary choices. Terms matter because they influence the questions we are capable of asking of these sources. So I think that that is really like important. And then he addresses, well, the possible inaccuracy or anachronism of the term transgender in a yeah. pre-modern context, right? And then you go, right. that's probably your next thought. Yeah. And he argues, well, rather the danger lies in the modern assumption about a binary gender system yeah. and a conflation of sex and gender that the terms transvestite nuns and the like imply. Yeah. So he really like does that work. And then finally, he argues that the way that he is using transgender in this text is that he uses transgender as an umbrella term that applies to a variety of gender variant practices and people of which transvestites and crossdressers are considered to make up an important, but not the only part. Right. So that's how Betancourt uses this idea of transgender to discuss these intersectional identities, the social power relationships, their politics of identification, and all of that. I hope that answers. Yeah, no, it's brilliantly said. And so I kind of was wondering as well, like, obviously, you know, you were saying earlier that he um, mentions some examples. And so one of them was Mary of Egypt. And I was just wondering if, if you had any words about her um, to a knowledge that's such as mine. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So as I said, Mary of Egypt in the book is in the introduction. She's yeah. also mentioned in the article that you yes. have. What is really interesting about Mary of Egypt is the way that her body is described. So her right. skin and her flesh, this idea that she's iconographically always depicted as this old wrinkly woman with like dark, dried out skin, withered breasts, and mm. that that's like how she's visually depicted. And so she, a lot of her authorship comes from the 7th century. Yeah. And uh, Betancourt talks about the monk Zosimas uh, and the ascetic Mary of Egypt. So Mary lived a very radical ascetic lifestyle, like yeah. the Desert Fathers, which I don't know if people are aware that there are these really extreme individuals who would go to the Egyptian desert and basically live as like hermits and let their bodies be weathered and beaten by the sun and the elements and through time. And that was how they like rectified for sins, not only themselves, but others. And so what was like interesting for Mary of Egypt, at least as like an introduction and concept was that she's this female body yeah. that then becomes radically different or othered in the sense that, you know, her secondary sexual traits of her breasts wither away. Yeah. That she has stopped menstruating. The idea of dark skin on women was undesirable. Women were at, in the Byzantine Empire expected to have, you know, pale skin, very much just like Victorian era, you know, with gloves yeah. and everything. So this darkening of her skin masculinizes her. So she becomes this kind of transcending female figure that through time becomes less female and more quote unquote masculinized or androgynous. Yeah. And she's often depicted with like masculine features, like the wrinkles on her body 
parallel a lot of like hair on males' bodies in yeah. images depicted alongside her. Um, but it's really interesting because with this concept of like pale skin on women, mm-hmm. if you think about it in very practical terms, to have pale skin in a time when you don't have like SPF, you'd have to be indoors, which meant that you weren't contributing to social life, which means that you were kind of a recluse, which in the sense of hagiography, it's interesting that like the polar opposite um, is the case for Mary. Yeah. If that makes I'm, sense, because that means that she must have been outdoors, you know, if she's depicted that way. No, and definitely. Um, I mean, part of the reason why she is considered, you know, not major, but like a saint that attention and images are dedicated to is because she radically changes her life before becoming an aesthetic. So she's depicted as a reformed prostitute from Alexandria who escapes into the Egyptian desert to find salvation. Right. So she, she kind of does a 180, if you will, of prostitutes, had the perfumes and the clothes, very, you know, obviously sexualized female attributes on their bodies that she then tosses away and goes and joins what are primarily the Desert Fathers yeah, and lives this harsh life. And part of what is interesting for Fedencourt in the book is that there's a, in depictions of her with Zosimas, she is naked in the desert. And before he wants to look at her, he tosses her a cloak. Yeah. And so, because he does not want to see her revealed nude body. Yeah. And so there's also that challenge of like, well, she's become not as feminine as she was, but she's still a female body. But the attributes and the way that she is presented and described are no longer those that are associated with femininity. So yeah, there's like this kind of really nuanced, complex intercourse that's going on between all of this. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's so interesting. (laughs) A little bit for you. You know, it's very different than the Virgin Mary, for example, who's very white, pure, virginal, sacred. You know, she's never shown from what I know as tanned and wrinkly. You do have the Black Madonnas in Poland and the Central uh, Eastern European you know, tradition, but that's for like another time. Also quite interesting as well, because like in depictions of saints, you'll have like male saints who are depicted in like an elderly age. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that, for example, I saw with um, the, my dissertation, like William Blake, for example, represented saints mm-hmm. and God in this like very old elderly man kind of thing. But for women, if you're a saint, you have to be young. you're depicted in like this kind of like for example the Virgin Mary she's always depicted in kind of like this young ethereal look and like it's kind of interesting to see how like an elderly woman probably if she was all wrinkly and stuff as well and that's something that's even to this day that we really choose to emphasize on aging bodies isn't something that we like to put the spotlight on yeah, I, I mean, I definitely agree. Yeah, I think Mary of Egypt lived to be in her 70s or 80s. So, I mean, yes, elderly woman. It's just interesting, I guess, thinking of the way that she's visually depicted and what you were saying, and then thinking about what becomes considered the trope or iconography of witches and witchcraft. Yeah. The abject female body. Yeah. And again, Mary of Egypt is a bit more complex because she has the withering of the figures that is then coded as masculine. But yeah, I mean, when you think of 
long gray hair, scaly, wrinkly, elderly woman, in your mind, you're initially, I think, going to go to a hook nose, moles. Yeah, exactly. Which making a brew over a cauldron. So again, for me and my research, these are things that I'm really interested in is the flipping of coded fictions as well as the parallels, right? That I've spoken of sanctity, virginity. Do do you think that like this kind of um, research is useful for what you will be researching in a way? Or oh. like these general questions, will they influence in any way? Like, are they applicable to your field as well? Definitely. I think that especially the chapter on transgendered saints, because even though Betancourt really opens up the transgender term in the chapter, and as I mentioned earlier, so the way that he uses pronouns is different, right? Yeah. And the article you read first, my chapter. So the article you read, he uses the neutral they there. Yeah. In the book... For example, like when he speaks of uh, Marina Marinos, who was a little girl that grew up with her father uh, after the mother died, when she became of age, uh, her father wanted to go into a monastery. Yeah. And Mary didn't want to leave him, so asked if hair could be shorn and join in the monastery as a eunuch. Yeah. Because eunuchs have much more... Uh, softer features because they're castrated. So they either are lacking their testicles and or their entire penis, which of course is where testosterone is developed, leading to certain musculature, facial hair, etc. And so in the book, when Marinos is being discussed, from the get-go, Betancourt uses he and male pronouns. Right. Rather than they. And though... Betancourt sets out that he's going to use terms that are as they are recorded in the texts. And then when not uh, with the documentation of a male or female quote unquote pr- uh, pronoun, then use of they. Yeah. And I respect that, but I still find there's something much more complex going on with a female bodied, female born body than joining a monastery and presenting as eunuch yeah for the rest of their lives i just i think that i maybe need to do some more research on the the broader elements of transgendered but i think that there may be something else and i do think it is kind of like a non-binary or third gender which Betancourt does discuss in that final chapter on the ethiopian eunuch and that being this kind of fluid gender identity yeah, it, it kind of reminds me um, of a book. Let me find it. Yeah, while you're, you're searching for that book, regards to my research, I am interested in bodies are presented and the stories that are told around them because though anticipating to be focusing on the final girl and that, I mean, there has been a change to the final victim, to the final person. And I will have to read, of course, male martyrs and everything. And so this notion of binary gender may play in yep. to my research more. So I was thinking of the of the novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, which I've uh, admittedly never gotten past page 150. <laughs> but, um, it's one of those books I, for the life of me, try to read because I, I know it's probably a really interesting read. I just never managed to get past that. But the first part is about people navigating like uh, some of the darkest times in India Mm -hmm. with the term is hijra so 
um, you know, those hermaphrodites. Yes. Um, and so that was, for me, that was the first time that I, like, read anything about this. But, like, um, so, you know, kind of a, an entry level to understanding something kind of new. But it's interesting to think of that idea and how mm-hmm. it may be represented in, in different cultures. And But it's really interesting because, obviously, like, sometimes it feels like we're talking about something quite new but actually it's interesting to see how it's all weaved together and how these things are studied in different places and how like for example for mm-hmm. a hijra there's a whole history of 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 their culture and right and how they want to be addressed and and the, the realities of their situation and so mm-hmm. that's quite interesting as well I yeah thought, I think. no uh, I definitely agree and you mean yeah there are also traditions of both boy girls and girl boys in different cultures and everything yeah. like dance troops or you know festival dress and everything and they think it is something that's like really important to like contemplate and study and think about and yeah even though I'm wanting to look at you know this very old I guess to contemporary but it's like why do final girls for example matter right or why do these other genders matter but it's like well, this is the way that coded bodies that we understand them and allow violence to occur to them. Yeah. And I think that there are, you know, in India, for example, like the, the caste system, I know that there's sometimes gender politics involved yeah. in that. And yeah, so this, all these intersectionalities, they all intersect, not just within a particular society or country yeah. even, yeah. but everywhere um there's shared relationships and there have been and I do think that that is definitely something that's important and we also talked about when we talked about Mulan you know uh warriors that kind of went back and forth between like I'm a woman no now I'm going to present as man and identify you know do these quote-unquote masculine things and fight in battle be super successful become a general and then walk away from that after living that life for 10 years and return to something much more, you know, quote unquote feminine or expected of my born gender, born sex, excuse me. Um, And yeah, that was in, you know, medieval times, times. And yeah. So we see it everywhere. Interesting as well. Like for example, this, we can complicate this even further, like cultural cross-dressing, Mm-hmm. which is a thing as well and like the politics around that I mean there's so much to explore within everything of this of the past and the present and the future that um it's really just truly fascinating yeah definitely and I think that that kind of positive note and opening up is a great spot for us to like end yeah. yes. today <laughs> we can always talk about this more and if you've listened and we're like oh you really didn't I wanted to hear more about the Annunciation I wanted to hear more about the Ethiopian eunuch let us know we're more than yeah. happy to or, revisit you know, share your own thoughts or read the book yeah. or read another book or suggest something to talk about we love to hear from you yes definitely and thank you again all of you for your support and listening and Ella why don't you share where we can be found so if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more please find us on Spotify Apple Podcast, Amazon, Audible, YouTube, just by typing Modern Medieval Podcast. You can also find us on our social media. We've got Facebook. We've got both a page and a group. Just type Modern Medieval Podcast. Um, You can find us on Instagram. Our handle is podcast.modern.medieval. 
um we share things um <clears throat> that we find interesting as well more info as well as more information on the episodes you can also email us if you wish just by typing modern.medieval.podcast.gmail.com and finally twitter yes you can find us on twitter at the handle at medieval underscore modern where we share all the episodes that we've released as well as information on that episode's image or iconography, history, background, as well as just other, you know, modern medieval links or things that we see floating around. Like, for example, when this review of mine is published, that will be shared. Everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, it will be bombarded everywhere. Yes, thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Elo, and this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. Do, 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 do.